over the past two years, our immune systems have really been strained. As we're heading into cold season, we need to be extra vigilant. There are lots of immune supplements in stores, but please listen. Reach for a strong colloidal silver liquid mineral, specifically natural path silver wings. It's an all-natural, easy-to-take, quick-absorbing liquid, anytime, anywhere immune support. There's virtually no taste, so take droppers or spray directly in your mouth or add into any beverage. Silver Wings has different strengths, from 50 ppm for daily immune maintenance up to 500 ppm extra strength for when you're traveling, in crowds, or if you're feeling run down. Silver Wings is perfect for the whole family. It's a safe immune protection that works, and we can all use that year-round, right? Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Health Power. If you listen to the show, you know that I love memoirs, and I just read a fantastic one. It is called Enough, A Memoir of Mistakes, Mania, and Motherhood. It is by Amelia Zachary. Amelia Mahandran Zachary is a full-time writer and advocate for sexual assault survivors and those who suffer from mental illness. She was recently published on HuffPost and Moms Don't Have Time to Write Blogs and Blogs Weekly at www.ameliazachary.com. Amelia is the author of the book, Enough, A Memoir of Mistakes, Mania, and Motherhood. Amelia, welcome to Health Power. Hi, Lisa. It's so nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me and holding space for me. Oh, I'm definitely holding space. In your book, it was heartbreaking. I got angry. I didn't understand people's reactions. And if people are wondering what I'm talking about, we're going to get into it in a moment. But first, I'm just curious, Amelia, when did you decide that you wanted to write this book and be so candid? This only came like two years ago and this was about almost 20 years after the um, inciting incident and um, I kind I have two daughters and so the whole I mean it's not a surprise that the this inciting incident is a sexual assault that happened to me when I was uh, in college and I have two beautiful daughters and I'm thinking like they're going to grow up and like face the kind of world that like we live in that's probably not going to be prepared to receive their magnificence I say and so I wanted to write this story kind of like a proof of my resilience and my courage that ran in their blood that they had in them too and that there is a there is an inkling of hope in a world where in in a situation where the world can be cruel and unkind there is always an inkling of hope and that's kind of like the start of the memoir I started writing to write to my daughters. It took a lot. I mean, what was it like to to write about these things? Was it cathartic? So it's a lot of things at once. Like, I think when I first wrote my first draft, it was catharsis. Like, I was like, wow, like, it's all out. But then, like, whereas I was progressing with it with de- developmental edits and, like, I was going through the situations again and finessing things, I think that was a different experience altogether. I was re-experiencing trauma. I was reliving the trauma and reliving all the stories that I, would te- I was telling in the story. And that became painful, but a very therapeutic process. I found a lot of answers and healing in writing. Oh, that's really good. I I love this in the book you write, early on in the book you write, I had once belonged to a family I adored, but I'd lost them all to my own distancing secrets or unwillingness to let them in. Yeah, it was a 
loss of sense of self entirely after something like that happens. And I felt like I was I was basically a child. I was 19 years old. I was not really an adult of the world yet. And so I was kind of feeling like I had disappointed my family. One of the things that they're worried about with a daughter is something like this happening. And then it happened and I let it happen. It's what That was what I believed then, that I let it happen. And so then like that was how I distanced myself and isolated myself from my family and the people around me. So that was a very difficult time. But I think like I like to come back to where I am now. And like the journey I've taken and the healing that has gone through and like the ability to let go and re revise my um, image of myself and kind of find a new sense of self. And I think like that new self-belief helps me deal with memories of the past. Like that quote that you brought up was kind of, it, it's, it's saddening. It's very sad that there was a moment that I was distanced from my family or I was separated from my family kind of because of this. I think one of the things too is that you were clearly roofied or something, right? Like you don't have any memory of going with this person. It's so incredible how women, because of our the sexism and misogyny in our society, how we blame ourselves. You were drugged. You have you're drinking something that you didn't know was drugged, but yet somehow you blame yourself. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying that in yeah. a blaming way towards you. I'm pissed off about society, but but that that is that is the rape culture that I have used my platform to speak up against, and a lot of women before me have used to speak up against rape culture, and it's the culture that we're raised in. Like little girls, like you don't dress this way. Right. There's those school uniforms debacle, like about what girls should be wearing and like how girls should be behaving. Cross your legs. Don't speak too loudly. Don't make yourself, bring attention to yourself. Don't go out at night. Don't go out at certain times. Don't wear things, certain things when you go to certain places. Don't be alone. Don't wear a ponytail. Like there are all these things that we tell girls and it's the culture that we live in that perpetuates assault. Yeah. That allows for these things to happen, embolden people to ha- for it to happen. And that's kind of why I wrote the book. Like these things happen and they're still happening. I know my story is kind of my story is kind of like 20 years ago story. But the sad part is it is the story of many women today. It is. And when are we going to teach the boys? Right? Like it's always on the girls and then it's our fault. It's it's insanity. Yeah. It's self self defense for girls. Right. And then boys will boys will be boys. Yeah. You know, I want to go back to uh, when you were 14, you went to live with your grandmother, and that was really tough. And you write in the book, uh, quote, I was born with a skin shade belonging to neither parent. I was not dark enough to be Indian like my father, nor nearly as light as my mother. Uh, this posed problems in our new town because the fair skin was evidence of your faith as well as your ethnicity. Biracial people were seen as oddballs. So you are already had a lot to deal with. As, a, as growing up, if you can tell us a little bit about this. So I, I grew up initially in Kuala Lumpur, which is the capital of Malaysia. That's where I'm from. I was born and raised in Malaysia. And then my parents left um, for work. And then we had to move to this little town where my grandmother lived. And so it's kind of like imagining moving to a rural area in America the mindset's different, the culture is different, and like it's a very everybody's everybody's in everybody's business kind of 
situation. But also there was this um, huge racial. I want to say, I want to say this correctly. Like there is there is um, huge racial definition. Like people were were categorized, who we were were categorized by our race. And so my father was Indian and my mother was Malay. And so I was in between and I was never part of it. I was I never belonged to either race. I was kind of like in limbo. I'm kind of like Indian. I understand what they're saying. I understand the language. I never learned the language. So I don't speak the language. They speak Tamil. And my mother's side, they speak Malay. And we grew up speaking English in our home. Like all my, my grandparents, my cousins, my mom and dad, like we all speak English at home. So that didn't really prepare us for a world that was so segregated. And so they're almost divisive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. There was something I thought was, I wonder how this has played out uh, in your life. Uh, you talk about your aunt, uh, Debbie, and I apologize if I say this wrong, Athe. Yeah, that's you, right. And you write, she tirelessly cared for us and wore uh, her affection on her sleeve. There was one thing she did not teach me, however, and that was self-care. Yeah, I think that was the the condition or culture in my family where women were, we have very strong women. Like my very strong women role models. My mother was a working woman and like she came home and like she took care of us and she went to work the next day. She was a TV producer. So she like was working odd hours and um, all that, but she always came home and took care of us. My aunt, the same thing. She goes and works a job. She was a banker and she'd come home and she'd take care of us, take care of my grandma. And like, that was just the way it was. And like how familial duty was so important in my family. And so I kind of, I didn't, that's a that's a mature reflection of her not teaching me self-care because now I understand what self-care is and I understand th- now I'm reflecting on how none of them did much self-care they were self-sacrificial to the family and that was like how they were raised and that's how they were raising us and the only way they knew how yeah and so now now that I now that I know better I guess I set a better example for my children and like how important it is to take care of yourself and to give yourself love and nurturing in order to be able to provide for the family. Yeah, it's so true. You have to you have to take care of yourself. You know, when you were going through this and after the sexual assault happened, you you know, you were kind of you were existing, right? But you weren't really living. Yeah. I would say that. I was kind of living in a shell and I was um, I had a lot of maladaptive behaviors that I couldn't control that I didn't know were maladaptive. I thought that I was just, I've given up and so I'm going to do what it is that I want to do or whatever comes to mind at that point in time. And so it was a very shallow, very hollow existence. A very difficult place to be in but it's easy to say that now reflectively, looking back. But while I was in it, I was engulfed in it. There was no way out. And I I was also then diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And then that kind of explained those behaviors. They kind of looked back and said, like, oh, this is textbook symptoms of bipolar disorder. What were some of those behaviors for people who aren't familiar with some of the things that happen with bipolar disorder? So I was promiscuous. I was having casual sex. I was drinking all the time. 
And then there were times that I was depressed and in bed and like couldn't get out. And um, there were times that I just felt numb. I just felt like I had no desire to live. And there was also suicidal ideation where I fantasized the thought of dying. And so, um, and I, there was irritability for, so let's, let's bring it back. Sorry. Sure. Let's bring it back. So hi, bipolar disorder, I have bipolar disorder type two, which means I have, I have hypomanic episodes, which are milder form of mania. And then I have depressive episodes, which is classic depression. But I stay longer in the depressive episodes than I do in the manic episodes. And so in hypomania, there are a lot of things. Sometimes I can be like super creative and um, I'm like in a euphoric state and I'm happy and I'm extremely happy. It's not like a a natural form of happy. Um, I can be very irritable and lash out at people, short-tempered. I can uh, be uh, my mind racist. My heart races. They are physical, physical symptoms. Um, anxiety is a byproduct of uh, hypomania, and so I had all these things. And later on, I understood that that was part of bipolar. You know, I was reading about when you first uh, found an American psychologist, Dr. Jacobson, and you got very defensive. And I think I think that's a normal reaction because you feel like someone's telling you there's something wrong with you. And if you can talk a little bit about that experience and how that's evolved over the years. I love these bits that you're picking out. Oh, thank so you. So these, these, these are the things that I'm passionate about, right? So um, I speak up a lot also against the mental health stigma because I, I experienced it and I believed it and that was barring me from treatment and healing and recovery. Um, I believe that like people who had bipolar would be volatile they are unreliable. They are people who cannot be in relationships, people who cannot be mothers. I was also told by one therapist later on that I was not going to be able to be a mother because oh I had bipolar. God. That's horrendous. And so there are all these, there's a, all this stigma around it that makes me think that I shouldn't get treatment because once I get treatment, I'm going to be labeled with something. I didn't know he was going to label me bipolar, but like I was like seeing a psychiatrist means or psychologist or therapist it just means that you're going to get some kind of label and I didn't want the label because I didn't want to be crazy I thought I that's what I thought was going to happen I was going to be called crazy and they're going to lock me up and that's going to be the end of my life which is not the truth at all because that was when my that was when my recovery truly began my healing journey truly began when I was able to see those things and um, combat the effects of bipolar and then like come to where I am now. People know about these things now. We're talking a lot more. It's not perfect. We don't like all know about it enough yet. I don't think it, there's enough understanding, um, but we see it a lot more on TV. We hear there's so many more podcasts like talking about bipolar. There are a lot, a lot of mental health podcasts, a lot of mental health radio shows, and like things, things are changing. People are talking about it. People are learning about it. But I think like awareness is so important, so that people who are suffering from it can get treatment. So they know about they know enough about it to get treatment. Yeah, it's huge. It makes a difference. Uh, tell us about Daniel. Oh, where do I start? So I, I'll let you guys read in the book, like how we met and all that. But we basically met and then fell in love. And very soon after, I moved in with him. And he is the most gentle, kind, giving 
persevering man that I have ever met in my entire life. I still have not met anyone like him or even close to what he is. But he is a big part of my healing. He's the one who was my advocate to start with to uh, help me um, to help me get treatment and then he was very supportive in the sense that I needed a lot of assurances about our love because I was as a trauma response I was not able to give love and receive love and understand what that would look like and he showed me what that could look like and that was immensely rewarding and fulfilling and so we've been married now for nine years so that's in a nutshell Daniel that is great well I know that he really wanted you to talk to that uh, it's like that first psychologist right Dr. Jacobson okay so he was the one who um, started the process like coaxed me into getting treatment and so when I started getting treatment he also understood that he needed to understand so that he could support me and we could learn how to be in a relationship that we didn't understand how my mind worked so that was very tricky but we did it and he came into sessions with me and I had homework on like how I was supposed to engage with him and so it was all a learning process and we're still learning we're still learning things we've been evolving together and I think that's the most magical part of it is that we've grown older together we've been together for more than a decade and like we have grown together and evolved together through my recovery Oh, see, that is so beautiful. You know, I'm I'm thinking about those, and I'm using air quotes, friends of yours in college that really just let you down, like beyond, I mean, it still blows my mind. Their response to you was so horrific and horrendous, and that I'm hoping that in their lives now, they're better educated, like if they have daughters. I don't even think they would hear your story. It seemed like they just assumed you went home with this guy blew them off at the party or and they didn't even want to listen to you you can kind of expand on that so it didn't make sense to me yeah i think that's that's basically what happened i think some of them um i wasn't very keen-eyed i was not like um aware that there were people who truly didn't like me or didn't like me being around and like thought that this was a clever prank to a horse. I, I don't know how to put it. Well, I can't speak for them. That's hard for me to say, right? Like what, what I can say, my experience from it was that I felt let down in the sense that they thought... Well, there's two ways to look at this. One of the ways that I've looked... You, you're asking me something that I've thought about so much, but now I want to vocalize it, verbalize it. Is <laughs> So, one of it, I think maybe it happened. They were scared. So instead of confronting the situation or supporting me, they just shunned me. It was an easier thing to do. And another thing, I think like some of them actually wanted it to happen to kind of teach me a lesson or or some sort. Um, But this is all hearsay, right? I, I have no evidence of like what truly transpired. That's why in the book, I only write my experience of like what what happened. And before you met Daniel, you had some pretty bad relationships. There was one guy in particular that was just awful. Oh, my God. He was so abusive. 
And you write, the abuse varied in damage and reach. It messed with my mind and sense of self-worth. I believed I was already broken and damaged, not worthy of love. And that's another part of trauma response. Right. right? Once, once you lose that sense of self and like lose trust in the world and the people around me. And I desperately wanted to be loved. I wanted to feel worthy. I wanted to feel like I was... I was something that was precious, that was, I was waiting for someone to show me that. And so, he happened to be the person in that time of my life, and like, I was so um, infatuated with the fact that, not not infatuated with him, infatuated with the fact that I could be loved, that I was, I belonged to somebody. And so... I did not want it to end and I allowed for the abuse to go on because I thought that I was getting it was this is as good as it gets and this is what I should hold on to what what changed for you when was it that you were able to see that you deserve everything and not this horrible crap that you've gotten so there was a process I think there was a process that went on and cognitively once I started treatment cognitively I was there I understood that like I was worth something like this is these are the these are the healthy thoughts to have and these are the healthy things to believe but I think the belief for it came much later which is only in the past couple of years which is why I felt I was in the right place to write my book I was in a place of healing and peace with myself I had accepted myself and like it was this it sounds Strange, but it was this kind of like magical transition when I saw, I suddenly saw myself, and I speak about this in my, um, this realization kind of came to me in my, on my trip to Sedona with my best friends. And it was, it was not that, you can't say that specific event happened and then like I changed my mind. It was a process over the years. And it was a process over the years where I was growing, evolving, transforming. But it was that moment, those moments when I was in Sedona that I suddenly felt like, this is me. I'm quite an okay person. Like I think I kind of like myself now. I like where I am. I like what I'm doing with my life. I like the way I'm thinking, the way I'm feeling, or in control of my emotions and my thoughts, and my bipolar was in check, and like I, I was under control. I was in control. Sorry, of my self, and that was when I think the shift happened. When I believed that, like I loved myself again. It's amazing how certain places or certain experiences can like just open our eyes, isn't it? Yeah, this has been building up and building up, but then it's like this. Oh my gosh! Wow, you know. And there's still more work, right? It's never like ooh yeah. aha moment, and then you're just done. There's still yeah. things to happen, especially being a mom. I also know that you dealt with postpartum, and that's very difficult. If you can talk to us about that, so postpartum depression. Um, I think it's like it's so common. I like out of five of my friends, at least four of them have had it. Oh wow! And like, I'm I'm just I'm throwing out my statistics, like because like when I had a baby, like a lot of my friends were having babies at the same time. Um, I think we all, we many of us experience it, but many of us are not prepared for it. 
nobody tells you that like this might happen. They they talk to you about the birthing process and about being pregnant and about delivering the baby and all the different ways you can deliver your baby, but nobody tells you about the aftercare. Yeah. No one talks to you about like what happens afterwards and what happens with your mind, your body and like this is how we they they talk about it in the sense of caring for the baby. This is what you can do for to increase your milk production or like this is what you can do to like take care of the baby. But no one talks to to us about the women who are experiencing emotional trauma. Like that's like a that's I mean that that experience of postpartum depression is an awful experience to think that to it happens in that most exquisite moment in your life when you just had a baby that you've been waiting for and then you're struck with this thoughts of um giving up and thoughts of like unloving unloving thoughts and like that's really difficult to go through and i i hope like more and more women realize that those thoughts are not normal and again awareness i i wish there was more awareness in that sense mental health care for mothers and like i i think that if there's more awareness people could get help earlier and like real and then enjoy because i spent some time not wanting to do it not wanting to get treatment because i believe that like i that caring for a baby was the most important thing in my life one of those things is probably from how i was raised right self sacrificial so one of those one of those things where like it's just my baby my baby's health is all that's important and nothing else is important i can go through this i can go through the pain I, it's okay for me but when i when i gave that up and then i started feeling better i started getting medication for it and started going to therapy again i realized that there was time lost yeah there was time lost with my child because i was so adamant on this specific aspect of caregiving of mothering that i lost out on like the experience of like having my newborn and enjoying those moments well what you're saying is so powerful because i think it can really help other women I used to have a show called Beauty Inside Out that I hosted with David Pollock. It was all about looking at what you're putting in your body and what you're putting on your skin. So I recently discovered a fantastic company, Osmosis Beauty, and I am thrilled to have them as a sponsor for Health Power. Now, what makes Osmosis Beauty so special is they have this unique philosophy. It's based on analyzing your skin and body as a whole, treating skin conditions at the source to restore beauty and wellness. Dr. Ben Johnson is incredible. Now, he developed Osmosis Beauty over 12 years ago with the goal of changing the direction of skincare away from excessive exfoliation and renewing the focus on dermal remodeling, barrier and DNA repair, and detoxification. The line includes non-toxic skincare products and treatments that combine the purity of naturally sourced ingredients with revolutionary, doctor-developed, and scientifically validated formulas that deliver on the brand's promise of permanent change. What I love is they offer skincare, but they also offer internal supplements as well as makeup. So I use Osmosis Beauty. I've seen a change in my skin. I absolutely love it. So to learn more, go to osmosisbeauty.com and follow the brand on Instagram at osmosis underscore beauty. I'm also curious, I think, and you can tell me if I'm mistaken, but I think with postpartum, there's, if someone says to you, I think you have postpartum, you're you're not trying to be in denial, but you really don't know, right? And you're kind of like, what are you talking about? I, this is normal. It's just, aren't you sad after you have a baby? Isn't this, or, or did you feel like something was off? I knew, so I had been 
pretty experienced with mental illness to that point. So someone saying that I that I had a baby, I think like almost ten years after treatment, and so like I've been in treatment for that long, and so it's not like something new to say that you have a mental illness. It was more like, oh my gosh, another thing. Like, what the heck is happening? Like, now I have another thing to deal with. And I don't want to deal with this. I didn't want to deal with it. And so that was... It, it, it that's... Like, my, I have I have experiences with my friends who were like, oh, I, I have postpartum. I'm like, me too. Like, I have it too. And like, so then we... Like, then we can talk about it. But I think more... the I keep saying this, but I don't know any other way to say it. Like, the more we talk about it, the more access to help we'll have. Oh, yeah. You can never say it enough. What do you, What are some of the things you love most about being a mom? Uh, my children's voices. My children's voices, there's nothing in the world that is more pleasing to my ears than listening to them talk to each other and laugh and play. Um, I love being able... One of my favorite things, I just talked about this this morning. My favorite thing about being a mom is knowing my child so well that she makes a face and I know exactly what it means. I love that. Yes. I know exactly <laughs> if she, I know exactly we need the bathroom or are you sad? Are you upset? Something's on your mind. You need to talk. Like, it's so obvious to me and I'm sure it's not to others. And I feel like that's a superpower. And I love that. That's my favorite thing about being a mom. Oh, I love that. How has your family responded to the book? Have have some of them read it? Um, my my aunt has read it, and my uncle has read it, and my mom is reading it, my brother's read it. Um, so we've mm-hmm. talked about it, and we've had conversations, and they were very saddened by what what happened to me. Not not exactly the inciting I- incident, not the assault, not the bipolar, but they were sad to know that I thought that I couldn't go to them. That they they felt like they failed me by not being available or not showing me enough how much they loved me that I I I could never change that that they would always love me. See that's and such so, an important message. Go on. Yeah. And so yeah, I mean like it's it's been it's been a journey writing this book like for myself, self discovery and this, uh, like a journey to self love and understanding myself more on the page. Because I kind of took a third-person view. Uh, I was looking from the outside. As a writer, I was looking from the outside writing the story. And I processed more efficiently and more accurately, I feel. like More accurate to the point of healthy development. And then like my, I finally was able to say to my family what had happened and explain what happened. And they were all like, we knew something was wrong, but nobody knew what. So they were um, very surprised. They were very shocked at like how I had gone through everything by myself. That I had not sought out their help. Or I did not think that they were available to me. And they were very assuring in the sense that like don't ever allow this to happen again. Because like we love you no matter what. And nothing that could happen to you could possibly change the fact that we love you. And... Um, I think that was very powerful for me to hear because for years I had thought that there was no way that they could love me, that they they would not be able to love me had they known like what I had done. So writing this book was kind of an answer to my own insecurities about what people would think. 
and allowing as as a kind of a bridge back to my family who now understood what had happened because they didn't understand what was happening. They were worried about me, but they were like, we knew something was wrong, but like nobody knew what was going on. And so that was very difficult for them. And so now I think my family is in a different place. Like we, we talked about it and we are closer than ever than we were before. And um, we are mending our relationship. Not that like we were estranged or anything. I was... I was hiding things from them so I didn't feel like I was myself around them. So now that's changed. That's awesome. You know, I'm I'm wondering if this is one of the things that you hope people take away that to share, right? That secrets just hurt us more. All of it. All of it. Like talk talk about things and like process things and like there's no need to internalize things. We were not made to be alone in this world. When we, when we choose to be alone, to detach and isolate, that only serves to fuel the toxic gunk that's in your mind, in your heart, and like that doesn't get you anywhere but to darkness. And I feel like being able to talk about things, even, whether it's your family or friend or um, spouse or children or whoever it is that you need to talk to, if we need to express ourselves more. We need to look for answers. We need to be more diligent about looking for answers. And not 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 accepting the status quo as like something that when you're in a situation that's horrible, instead of accepting it, having the drive to want better. I think that has that has helped me a lot in like getting to a place of peace of acceptance and inner peace I think was a lot to do with um, um, wanting more wanting better is there anything that you any message that you want to give to uh, women who've been sexually assaulted and also people who love them and and proper ways to respond for women who have been assaulted I believe you it is not your fault first and foremost um i think that's so important to like understand that your self-doubt and like people doubting you does not change what has happened but accepting it as a violation and understanding what has happened as a violation of yourself and your boundaries and um being able to see it from a different perspective than the hurt perspective I mean, it's, it's, I was in a lot of hurt and I couldn't accept things. So I, it was easier to blame myself. I don't know whether this was conditioning or this was rape culture or like there could be so many reasons, a culmination of things. But like being able to like finally accept and let go and say like this has happened to me and it, it happened to me. I was not a willing participant. And to have support system, people who say I believe you, that's the next part. Um, having, if you know somebody who's been sexually assaulted, the first thing the victim wants to hear is, I believe you, and it's not your fault. Like, those are the things that we need to hear first. Because there's a lot of doubt when it comes to um, sexual assault, right? Um, Again, the stigma and the rape culture where, like, a woman lies about these things and, like, 
it diminishes the value of like a person coming forward because it's so difficult to come forward. But we have to. I'm not saying report. I'm not pressuring anyone to like make reports and like bring huge uh, lawsuits or accusations and like things like that. I'm talking about the healing process, being able to talk to somebody to just voice it out to one person, whoever that one person is allows for us to then figure out what it is that you want in your healing. Right. That is that. Yes, exactly. Now, Amelia, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to talk about before we conclude? And I just want to say that you're incredible. I'm, I'm so moved by your book and by you. And I'm so glad you came on the, today. Well, thank you so much. Like that's, uh, it's been amazing to be here. I think you've, I think you've touched a lot of stuff that like I've wanted to talk about. Um, and so I appreciate you going through the book and having um, your thoughts on it and that we could discuss so openly and so freely on your platform. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. The book is Enough, A Memoir of Mistakes, Mania, and Motherhood. Tell us all the places we can find your awesome book. So if you want a signed copy, go to ameliazachary.com. Under Enough, you'll see a tab for a signed copy, and I'll get that out to you. But it is also sold on Amazon and anywhere books are sold, bookshop.org, Target, Barnes & Noble, um, Thrift Books, wherever uh, wherever books are sold, you can find them online. Um, Connect with me if um, you feel so moved to, if you read the book and you feel like you want to... Um, reach out, reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram, Brown Girl Crazy World. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you and we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.